This is unjust. We're looking into America's criminal justice system and questioning if there is any real justice incorporated into what we trust to determine the guilty from our innocent. I'm your host, Madeline Pukiti, where we'll be diving into the world of cash bail. I'm in downtown Minneapolis and going to talk to William Moore. He is the chief public defender. After finding my way up to his office, I was offered some coffee and we sat down to talk. This episode will be broken up into three parts. The first part of this episode will be Bill Ward talking about his story and the role he plays. Then we'll dive into more of the nuances of the issue. And then the last part will be a conversation about who's to blame and what can be done. This is William Ward. I am the state public defender for Minnesota. When you first became a lawyer, did you know you were going to be a public defender? Yes. You did? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And was that because of life experiences for you? or? I was pretty sure I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in high school or college. Okay. Um, it wasn't until I was arrested in 1979. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then saw the system. And that's... You go to jail <laughs> one time, and then... Um, being a part of a system, I quit school, mm-hmm. hired a lawyer, and was in that courtroom and, and just saw dozens and dozens of people. Yeah. Um, it was in Cook County. Um, okay. Most of the folks in, in that audience were Latino or African-American um, and had uh, pretty good discussions with my lawyer at that time. His name was Stan Pisani, and uh, explained it. Uh, who represents these people? And he, yeah. and he told me, and he was a state's attorney, which is, is in theory the equivalent of what our county attorneys are, an, an assistant, um, and uh, understood what the processing of, of cases meant. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, uh, it, it helped me kind of um, find my way. Thank you for sharing. Sure. That's- then he did go back to school, and he went on and got a law degree, and now he is a public defender. But my main question here is, what exactly does his role as chief public defender mean and how has he seen it all change over the years? My role as state public defender is to um, work on policy issues at the legislature, uh, ensure that the, our board's missions are being followed by my staff, uh, both management staff and lawyer and non-attorney staff alike, um, making sure that we work with the legislature to get appropriate budgeting for us, because we are a uh, statewide-funded system versus county-based, and to basically run the agency of 800 people. So I've been doing this for over three decades. When I first started, uh, I I believe there were less than 400,000 people in jails and prisons Mm -hmm. in the United States, and it's now at over 2.3 million people. Uh, when I first started, uh, it was uh, the war on crime, the yep. war on drugs, yep. you name it, from Nixon, and then, of course, Clinton made it even worse, and more policing. And when I first started, the criminal law book was this thick, and you can see it sitting over there now in that black thing, it's now this thick. So we've wow. over-criminalized just about everything. Every time something bad happens, there's a politician who introduces a bill who wants a law to change this, and, you know, harsher, 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 yeah. harsher. And nothing has changed. All we've done is a billion plus every year in, in, in prisons and jail costs. Um, we, uh, you know, we have harmed people to no end based upon collateral consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a part of that system, right? I mean, for me, it was about being a good lawyer. I wanted yeah. to be a good litigator. It really was a very selfish thing about wanting to litigate and try cases and, and be an orator and, and to convince people that I was right. Um, 
so my generation has made things tremendously worse. Uh, so the folks who are younger than me, who are on the bench, are, I guess, in some ways part of my generation. Um, and they have not made the change. Yeah. And the change is about um, data. It's about evidence-based practices. It's about truly scientific information about how bad the system really is yeah. and how we actually harm people. Probationary periods are too long in this mm-hmm. state. Um, I've been fighting that since I came here. Uh, I testified again in that last session. Um, it's about the data that the longer they're on, the more harm you do to them. You actually make them worse. Yeah. Uh, it's about retribution. It's about culture change in, in counties that just don't like people. And um, I've come, uh, I've, it's not even a transformation, it's a better understanding for me as a human being about what the system has done to people. And I knew it, you know, right? But I, in order to be, um, I guess, successful, however you want to define it, in order to uh, do my work better in yeah. order to be to, in order to come into work every day in some ways I had to, I had to compartmentalize what we did every single day yeah. um, and a lot of that was the work right I was doing death penalty work and just you know looking at what are horrific allegations and doing the best I could for the for the folks I was uh, lucky enough to represent yeah. but I would say it was probably the early 2000s about understanding what it really meant to be client-centered. And that's really when the proliferation of the Internet came about as far as collateral consequences, about the existing rules on, you know, this idea of pre-trial diversion. It Mm -hmm. doesn't help anybody because they're still in the system. You need pre-charge diversion. You know, it's about understanding just how we've damaged people and their families and how we have generations and families and generations of families who are in the same lot that they are because of the government. And that's my transformation. As Bill talked through how he became the lawyer he is today, with the influence of the war on drugs, with overcriminalization, and the major influence of the internet, from being a college student arrested for the first time and seeing how many people the system screwed over, to becoming a lawyer that has grown to make it his job to advocate for those same groups of people. I sat in my chair looking at the notes I had sprawled over my blue notebook. I was interested in what he would do next. In part three, we will talk more about his views on the bench, but while talking about his transformation as a lawyer, I asked him if he would consider being a judge. Do you think that would be a possibility for you? No, God, I've been asked to run a thousand (laughs) different times. There's no, I have no interest. I would have stayed in Chicago if I had interest. Okay. I, I I find that that job would be the most boring job in the world. Okay. I, mean, I just do. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't handle, uh, like right now we have, well, we only have two suburban courtrooms. I used to have three, but every day there's hundreds of people that go through Ridgedale or Brookdale mm-hmm. on driving cases, DWIs, yeah. and you're hearing the same cases every single day. And I'd rather stick needles in my eyes. I mean, I enjoy, okay. you know, it's, it's, they should say like that. They're doing work, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's. I'm not criticizing the work they're no, doing. I, it's just it's not. It's not for you. You know, I, I, I quickly crossed out "judge" in my notebook, and none of you all have to worry about looking for William Ward on your ballot. The bench, obviously, not being for him, led him to talking more about what he is doing right now and his real admiration for his job. Yeah. I do a, a lot more teaching, um, a lot less than I used to, but I still teach and, and cross and other aspects of the cases. But yeah. I just, uh, to be a judge, uh, I, I think, I mean, my job is, is not, um, my job is about clients. Mm-hmm. It's not about um, 
uh, causes, um, but ultimately that's a part of policy and making policy. And I, I would much rather be involved in affecting change in a larger way than just being a judge chambered in a courtroom. Yeah. You know, so if I've got issues, say, in, in um, you know, Yellowstone County, if there's yeah. something that we can address there, um, I can do that from here yeah. uh, because I'm not beholden to the bench. You know, ultimately, we are a very independent agency. Okay. Now we will move into part two of this episode, where we will discuss more of the nuances of the issue, like data security and collateral consequences associated with that. While we are also talking about how race and income levels are always at the forefront of this issue. Before we dive into all of that, though, here's just some general prefacing on the context of any cases or instances that Bill Ward addresses. Again, I can only talk on behalf of my clients, yeah. which are the vast majority of people who are charged with crimes in the state of Minnesota. Uh, we represent 90 to 95 percent of all felonies that are charged in this state. I mean, literally that many. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, juvenile cases, 95 percent. Uh, yeah. All uh, gross misdemeanors, probably 80 percent. Misdemeanors, 60 to 65 percent. So. My office handles 155,000 cases a year, so I, I have some perspective as to yeah. what it is. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I, there's whenever when I was the chief here, mm-hmm. and I know they still do it. When new judges are are appointed, ultimately our office would meet with those judges and yeah. have conversation with them. Typically, 40 lawyers or, or you know 50 lawyers and non-attorney staff would show up. And one of the judges, I won't name who he is, um, we had a conversation with him and talked about bail. That's yeah. always our conversation. It's always about bail. Honestly, okay. it's always wow. about bail. Okay. Um, and then I followed up with him uh, about six weeks later. You know, So in the meantime, as part of his um, um, orientation, he works with another judge, which is an issue. What mm-hmm. judge you're working with? Are they the ones who believe in... In, in change in the system, or are they the ones who've been doing the same thing their entire career yeah. who are afraid of change? As talked about in the last episode, the judge is the one who sets bail or determines the price of bail. And then implicit bias can determine how high the price is set. This implicit bias can be based on race, sexuality, or class. The, the poor get the shaft on that, right? So I have including part-time lawyers, which about 35% of my staff mm-hmm. outstayed is our part-time lawyers. Um, I only have 535 lawyers in my entire staff, and that's for 155,000 cases yeah. a year. To put it in perspective, I have 44 investigators statewide, 44. Think of the thousands of yeah. police officers are out there and investigators for the Sheriff's Department, yeah. investigators for the County Attorney's Office. I have 44. Um, and that's what we have been budgeted for, and yet the the courts expect us to just move these cases through the system. And so in that way, I would say that um, the system is crap for the poor. Yeah. Uh, if you're wealthy uh, and the, your lawyer is only handling you know 15 or 16 yeah. cases at a given time, they have more time to spend on a case. Um, I put my lawyer's uh, um, skills and in, 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 um training up against any private member, but when they have as many cases as they do, their ability to communicate with their clients like we like, uh, their ability to actually personally go out on the scene to see the, the, the uh, you know, quote-unquote crime scene, the ability to do the work that I I would want if I was being charged with a crime yeah. um, is lessened because there just isn't enough, aren't enough hours in a day. You know? So in that way, I think the system is terrible for the poor. Uh, they are ori- their orientation includes working with prosecutors and, and, and corrections, right, yeah. who make bail recommendations. 
So I had pulled the data on, on his bail hearings from a week earlier, actually two weeks earlier, mm -hmm. and um, I gave him two examples, and one which was a young person, and she was arrested for, um, I think it was loitering, okay. and she had two prior warrants for loitering, right? Like, who the hell cares? Yeah. Um, and he said, and I asked him if you remember the case, and he did. And I said, well, why did you set the bail the way you did? He goes, well, it was recommended by, you know, corrections because she had got out before. And I said, what do you think happened? Well, she got out. It was only 100 bucks." I said, no, she didn't. And he was shocked by that. I said, why did you think that she was going to get out? He said, it was only $100. I said, people can't afford $100. He goes, she's still in? I said, she's in right now. She's been in for five days as a result of your bail setting. And they have no idea. They have no idea. They don't follow up. Then understanding that judges are just doling out bail prices and going on with their lives without a second thought really made me angry, especially since earlier in our conversation, we talked about how you'll plead later in your case is greatly affected by how much time you've spent in jail already. And people who are in jail are more, much more likely to plead guilty to a yeah. crime, even if they did not commit that crime. Uh, so it has a huge impact on folks who cannot afford bail. And so she's been sitting in jail for five days, and the judge who unknowingly but yet essentially caused this has absolutely no idea. I said, so your $100 bail costs the county $140 a day to house her. Yeah. And then I don't know what happened with her job or her yeah. family or her kids or any, and he, and, I, and I, 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 I don't dislike the gentleman. I, I think he's a very good man, but had no idea. Yeah. Um, another example, same conversation, he issued a lot of no body warrants. Okay, so body, I should say body only warrants. So a person, violates a probation, whether it be on a, typically a gross misdemeanor, maybe a misdemeanor or, or, or a felony, they're on probation. Yeah. And they didn't do something, typically a technical violation, failed to report, failed to do a drug test, whatever that might be. And these are low-level offenses, and yeah. they issue body-only warrants. I don't know if you know what that means. Can you explain what They can't bail out. Okay. So they're arrested. They can't bail out. It's not an amount of $100, and they learn about it. They can, they can oh, set their bail. It's body-only. Okay. So they, they go and arrest them someplace. You know, either yeah. they're arrested on something else or they're on the street. They remain in jail on a body-only warrant. They cannot be released. Wow. And I said, well, why would you do that? He goes, well, that was the recommendation of Correa. I said, so what? Yeah. I said, that's that's the knee-jerk recommendation, body only. I mean, do you know what that means? And he did. And I said, well, why would you do that on a low-level offense? Yeah. You know, so it's just it's just education piece mm -hmm. of people of just doing things and not attaching the humanity, the, the, the human being, to what yeah. they're actually doing. It's just, it's just, you know, kind of stamping and rubber stamping yeah. other people's recommendations. We can't just end the conversation there. She got a high bail price and she was stuck in jail. He got a body only warrant and was stuck in jail. Being stuck in jail, as mentioned, makes you more likely to plead guilty, which can mean more jail time. We started then to talk about what this means in the larger sense. A, a, a guilty plea to a crime in this state, um, in all states, has a huge collateral consequences um, depending on what the plea is to. But even misdemeanor and gross misdemeanor cases carry what they call quote unquote collateral consequences. So, for instance, if you are a young person, you plead guilty to a possession of marijuana charge because you're in mm -hmm. custody, that will preclude you from getting student loans to go to college. Yeah. 
um, you know, it precludes you from getting a barber's license. I mean, the, the collateral consequences that exist now compared to when I first started as a lawyer are just, it's an exhaustive list. It's ridiculous. It can preclude you from student loans or that barber's license because of how easy that information is to access. I tell people when I was younger, mm -hmm. um, you know, the internet did not exist. It's probably hard for you to believe that <laughs> it didn't exist, right? So if someone was found guilty of a crime and a potential employer wanted to learn about their background, they would have to go to the courthouse, pull the court, pull a court file yeah. if there was one, do the research and make a determination. Well, now that's just a flick of some buttons, yeah. right? So I talk in terms of realistically, we, we will have a generation of unemployable people wow. as a result of, of Google searches, as a result of, um, you know, just on arrests. Uh, in you know, the private sector and the public sector, you can choose not to hire people based upon their background. It doesn't seem fair, but that's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. And it's just so easy for, for data miners to look up people's names. I mean, you don't need much of an identifier. You don't need their social security number. You know, their, their name and, and date of birth is more than sufficient. Sometimes the name is sufficient. Uh, and then you run their name. Uh, you know, I can run your name and mm -hmm. see what's up there. Um, there are public searches now on um, what they call Minces, which is a, a public access. And you can run anybody's name in there that you want yeah. and see what's there, if there's anything there, and make a determination as to whether or not you want to employ that person or give them housing or whatever. This is that whole idea of data security and how the rise of the Internet has made it so much harder to get your life back after being incarcerated. Now, throughout this part, we have talked a lot about implicit bias and how it specifically impacts people in the bail setting process based on their income. Because judges assume that they can pay the rates. But you also have to understand that implicit bias doesn't just start there, and it's not only about class. Yeah. There's no doubt that um, individuals of color are absolutely overrepresented in the criminal yeah. court system. They just are, right? I mean, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the kids in the diner, or young people in the diner, or older people in the diner are committed the exact same crimes as the yeah. kids in South Minneapolis. They're not getting arrested, the kids in South Minneapolis are, mm -hmm. right? And, and I don't, I'm just making up an area, I don't know. Um, there's no doubt that, that individuals of color are overrepresented. Yeah. And that is clear. Um, that's not necessarily a, co a court system issue, it's though, issue. right? That is a policing and community okay. issue. Okay, and, so that's and, where um, you see the root of this well, issue. Well, th it's in two, two parts. Okay. But, but the biggest issue is keeping people from coming into the system in the first place, yeah. right? Either through diversion programs, not pretrial, but pre-charged. They're not charged in the first place. Um, and, and rethinking, you know, police practices. Yeah. I don't necessarily blame the police. I mean, ultimately, they're being told what to do by their superiors, and yeah. they're being told what to do by their mayors. So ev everybody ultimately has to have responsibility. I'm not going to pick out one individual, mm -hmm. one uh, section or another. But there's no doubt that what happens on the street affects what happens in the courtroom. Okay. I see that when I was the chief here. I see it. I live here. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I see it every single day. Yeah. The question is what happens once they're in the system. Yeah. And I would not limit that issue to policing and the community. The data as talked about in the last episode shows us that, that there is implicit bias in that bail hearing and all too often in reference not only to class but also race and the price tag being set higher for the person who is black. This is an issue that is deeply engraved in the police department but also in the courtroom. And on that, 
this next bit will wrap up part two. I've seen that kind of implicit bias pay into the caps, into how the bail is being set. It's hard to say that I've seen it. I just know it. You know it. You know, yeah. it, you just know that that's yeah. what happens. I mean, if and, and frankly, we have the data, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not data on implicit bias. It's, it's data on people who are arrested, again, for low-level offenses. Yeah. Why are they in jail? Um, and, you know, we can... We can pretend that that bias doesn't exist, and yeah. Minnesotans tend to think that the bias doesn't exist, but it, it but it really does. Yeah. And once we um, either take stock in that or, mm-hmm. or truly understand it, that it, it'll be difficult to affect change. Yeah. In part two, Ward went through how this woman was screwed over by the court, and then the judge did not even give a second thought and spent no time following up on the case and how then it can go on to have rippling effects throughout the rest of her sentencing. It's the judge or the bench making that call. It's about recognizing that this is not about processing a case, it's about a human being and, and, and their fundamental rights. Yeah. And that's on the, I blame the bench on that, I really do. So there's just almost like a lack of humanity, there just really is a lack of humanity. Yeah, I, I would say that individual judges firmly understand mm-hmm. what we're talking about. I mean, I really believe that. Okay. And, and trust me, I've been uh, uh, gotten in trouble for saying what I do about the bench. <laughs> uh, individually, they completely understand, but the pressures of the uh, court administration, the pressures of the Supreme Court, our Chief Justice, and the Judicial yeah. Council basically tells them they need to move cases along. Yeah. I'll give you an example. So every month, there, what we have is a judicial council in Minnesota. So that's the chief judges of the 10 different districts, and, and, and plus mm-hmm. the chief judge of the appellate office, of the appellate uh, courts. And they meet every month, and they look at the, their data as far as how many cases are in their, in their respective counties or districts, and how many are green, blue, yellow, whatever, the color. You know, If it's a red, they're in trouble because they're on the calendar for too long. Okay. And so we talked to them. I've talked to a number of chief, chief judges about that, and, and uh, most recently Judge Guffman, uh, chief of the second, about these timelines, and he tells me about these reports, and they're getting pressures. And I said, well, what's the worst thing that can happen to you as a chief judge? What's the worst thing? And he sat there for, I said, you're embarrassed. He goes, yeah. I said, well, who cares? I said, what happens to my clients because of this ludicrous timeline is they're convicted, they're in jail, they go to prison, they lose their, lose their livelihood, and you're worrying about your own embarrassment? Who cares about that? Yeah. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking The elitism in the criminal justice system is astounding to me. The power people at the top, like judges, have value public defenders and their clients not getting nearly the resources they deserve. Yeah, and I think that the court needs to understand that when we ask for a continuance, there's a purpose behind that. Yeah. It's not because we're lazy, it's because we're not ready. Yeah. Uh, so there needs to be professional deference. I mean, it, it doesn't, in no way does it do us any good to ask for a continuance, you yeah. know, if we are ready, because another case just comes in. I mean, yeah. I mean, the other thing you should know is we cannot refuse cases. We cannot refuse cases. No matter how many cases we have, no matter how difficult the cases are, we cannot refuse cases as by ruling by our Minnesota Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So if we continue your case... Can other states refuse some cases? Some places can. Yeah. Wow, okay. Um, but we can't. Mm-hmm. So when we're asking for continuance, because we're not ready, but we also know that another case or more are, are going to come in, right? Yeah. So there's no benefit to us extend, you know, extending the timeline of a case but for to be prepared. Yeah. Um, you know, so ultimately, you know, the the courts would tell you that, you know, and, and I understand there are 
they are acting on behalf of, of all the citizens, you know, the, mm -hmm. you know, the quote unquote victims, the complainants, making sure that they get their day in court too. But they, they don't have the constitutional right of their day in court like our clients do. Yeah. As we've been going through, change would make so much sense logistically for everybody. But what about monetarily or economically? Older adults who, who are paying taxes yeah. through their property taxes would want to um, address the, situ the issue. Yeah. Because it costs for here, we have on average in Hennepin County, it's around 500 people per day who are in jail. I mean, you can look it up. I think it's around 500 people per day. It costs $140 a day to house somebody in jail. Uh, so just the cost of Hennepin County to house people in jail is, is, is an exorbitant amount of money. Yeah. And what's interesting about the system here is, you know, you have your county attorney, Mike Freeman, and his office mm -hmm. prosecute felonies. They don't, and, and some gross misdemeanors. It's the local jurisdictions who are responsible for prosecuting most gross misdemeanors and all the misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. um, but then when they ask for a bail amount, it's the county who bears that burden of cost of housing individuals, not the localities. You know, so there's a, again, there's a confluence of, of, um, of, uh, of you know, Minneapolis, say, which is the largest jurisdiction, or Edina or uh, Bloomington not working together and say, how can we reduce the cost of the court system overall? Yeah. And most importantly, uh, you know, let people stay out of jail because they are presumed innocent. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing people forget. Uh, so I would think, I think, I would think in Minnesota, just the cost would, would should motivate people to want to address the issue more. Um, I, I believe that people put their head in the sand, they, you know, because they're not involved in the court system. That it really is none of their business, and other people know better. Yeah. Um, and I think people just don't care. Uh, okay. You know, there is this presumption that if people are arrested, that they really are guilty. And uh, why, why do we care about those yeah. those people in yeah. quotes? And so, the need for change, the corruption embedded in the system, was all clear to me, economically, logistically, socially. But my big question was, what does someone who is working with clients and policy being a big part of his job think needs to be done? He ran through how often time spills are proposed, like factoring if you have in children to hopefully get you a plan that would allow you to be back home with your kids faster, but how that could just lead to having your kids being taken away from you. We talked about how in the 70s as a kid, if he was caught doing something he shouldn't do, the cops just called his parents and his parents yelled at him, but his friend who was black was arrested. Ideas that seem good, if you take a closer look, have many very negative latent outcomes. Do you think that the change that needs to be done lies in legislation or in the courts, or how do you think that change needs to come about? Um, that's a great question. Uh, Representative Knorr would say it's through a statute yeah. um, or a bill. Um, I would tell you that uh, Minnesota's constitution mm -hmm. and court rules actually, um, if they were followed, uh, would be sufficient, mm -hmm. but they're not being followed. And, and I, I blame the bench and I blame the prosecutors. The, the bench takes a lot of the heat for it because ultimately they're the, the arbiters as to what should or should not occur on bail. But it's the prosecutors who make the recommendations, right? They're always asking for, you know, whatever bail amount that's going to be. And, and that, to me, um, this could sound terrible because I'm older, but it's often done by people who are young, who have a lack of experience, who have no life experience whatsoever. Yeah. 
and they're doing what they're being told by their superiors, whether it be the, the county attorney or the managing attorney for their offices. The judges will always make decisions because they're afraid that somebody's going to do something while they're on in bail, yeah. uh, which is unfortunate, but it's true. Um, and any retired judge would admit that. Uh, so I, bl I, I do blame those two um, uh, players in the system okay. for sure. Um, the uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, the, the rule says, uh, that 601 or 602, said, in fact, I made a copy of that for you here, um, that they shall be released unless you can mm -hmm. find for public safety reasons or people won't come back. It shall be released, yeah. uh, but it's not followed. Uh, so I blame the court for not uh, following what the rules are. Yeah. Um, and, um, and ultimately, it's an education piece, perhaps. Okay. Um, but it's also they rely on other people to inform their decisions. I wanted to hear, we won one court case and it's fixed, or one good bill gets passed and bam, it's all fixed. But that's nowhere near the reality. Lots of change needs to happen, including educating judges more, passing Nor's bill and ending cash bail, but also individual citizens need to pay more attention to judge elections, holding people accountable to our constitution, informing ourselves, electing state senators and representatives that give a damn and will help pass legislation to make change and will include public defenders in the conversation of what will be in the legislation. So there's not a quick fix, and it's dumb to think that there is, but there's a lot of things that can and should be happening right now that just aren't. Words are important, and we don't have a criminal justice system, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm going to tell you. It's a criminal court system. Okay. Um, by, and and I, I say this to people all the time, by continuing to call it a justice system, there's implicit bias mm -hmm. on that too, because there really isn't justice for the vast majority of people who are in the court system. Uh, there just isn't in the criminal yeah. court system. Um, you know, fixes, I, I think, are going to be much more available in, in um, uh, localities. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for your interest in this stuff. Yeah. And now I'd like to once again thank William Ward for talking to me about cash bail and all of the ways it affects and can ripple throughout the criminal court system. Have a nice day. This has been episode two of Unjust, where we are currently taking a deeper dive into cash bail and questioning if there's any real justice in our criminal justice system. I'm Madeline Pukiti, and thank you for listening.